Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Zayda Williams, founder and managing partner at AZK Media, a global media and marketing company. Welcome. Thanks so much, Darren, for having me. Well, look, it's an absolute delight having you because I love catching up with people who have made a sort of career path into marketing that's not necessarily a straight road. And you're one of those people, aren't you? Absolutely. I have been told that I have a very checkered past from many other marketers. <laughs> checkered past. That's a very polite way of saying a crooked road. Because you actually started out, you're, you're a trained lawyer. That's right. I was a banking and finance lawyer at one of the biggest law firms in Australia. That's right. Was that uh, Gaidens, which yeah. is now called Denton's? Denton's yeah. yeah, I remember Gaidens. I, I probably lost track of when it became Denton's. But um, l- the law is an interesting uh, calling, isn't it? Was this something that you were passionate about, or did you fall into it because you were one of those kids at school that was just really good? The the latter. I just got the marks, and I ended up down the path of law. I studied um, English literature at the same time, so I did an arts law degree. Um, And so I did a lot of writing and editing. I was the editor of so many different law journals and publications when I was studying law. So I always had like a a sort of little segue into um, journalism and publishing and the comms world while I was a lawyer. Um, But it just pulled me away from the law. Well, and it's because that was your next step, wasn't it? You went from law into journalism and not just, you know, the local newspaper, you were writing for some really big media titles, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, look, this was a long time ago where the internet was just taking off and um, Reuters had a new legal newswire that they were just putting out on the internet that they'd never done before. So they needed someone who had journalistic skills and they also needed someone who was a qualified lawyer. And that was a really rare skill to have. Um, So I took that plunge. I thought, you know what, I see a very straight path in law, but this path could be really interesting. It's not as well paid potentially at the moment, but it could lead to somewhere really amazing. So I made a huge leap. I ruffled a lot of feathers um, in the legal industry and they're like, are you mad to take this role? And, you know, what are you going to do? But Because the law is one of those callings, you know, where people, you know, you you go in and you're an article clerk or, you know, there's versions of that, and then you're an associate, junior associate, senior associate, junior partner, senior partner, and then you die. Pretty much. It's a very straight... I could see where that road was leading, and I didn't really like where it ended. So I preferred to go somewhere completely unknown, untravelled. Yeah. And it's exciting, isn't it, when you can combine things that you're passionate about into your day-to-day life, because clearly, as you said, you loved writing. Um, and, and English literature is not quite journalism, but it is in that area of writing, isn't it? Yeah. So um, as part of my um, English degree, I studied ad- adapting content into various formats. So, for instance, um, if you look at Shakespeare, you look at Dickens, 
um, they are just, the narratives can be reformatted in so many different ways. So that was um, one of my honest thesis and how they wrote in a way that could be repurposed to film, to TV, to um, magazine. Um, and uh, this is actually a very interesting skill set that a content marketer really needs today. And that's something that I picked up as extremely important and timely 25 odd years ago. Yeah. And, and because we all talk about storytelling, don't we? I mean, I don't think there's a week goes past where someone in the marketing media industry is not talking about storytelling. But in actual fact, it's a, a strange sort of storytelling that people are talking about, you know, that it, they almost think that any narrative is a story, but not every narrative is a story, is it? No, uh, and, and people think that, you know, just some promotional mumbo-jumbo put together is a story, but, you know, it, it, if it doesn't resonate, if it doesn't educate, if it doesn't inspire, then, you know, you're wasting your time. Mm. So um, you went from uh, Thomson Reuters. How did you end up in the UK working at the Times and the Sunday Times? Yeah, so um, I actually went for an interview um, for a very large Australian publication, top tier, one of the biggest, Right. Um, straight after um, uh, Reuters. And uh, they back then my name was Azada, my maiden name is Azada Kalilizade, very long. And they said, oh, they jokingly said, how on earth are we going to fit your name in a byline? And they mocked me. They laughed at my name. And I was absolutely shattered because I'd worked myself up that high um, in so quickly um, as a journalist. And they knocked my confidence just by mocking my name. So I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I can see where things are heading. There's a GFC around the corner. And I know where the news is going to be. The news is going to be in the UK mm. or the US. And I decided I'm going to go to the UK and I'm going to just make it as global journalist. I just put my mind to it. I went there. Within three months, I networked just with my own volition, no industry contacts there whatsoever. Didn't know anyone in the UK. Never been there. I went there. Within three months, I found some legal editors who were desperate for good legal journalists who could understand the GFC and articulate it. And I was hired and I had a full feature on private equity in the Times, three months of me being in the UK. That's amazing. I mean, what I really uh, admire, though, is your focus and your determination, because so many other people would have just taken that, uh, that mocking and ridicule and completely walked away. But you turned that, you turned that anger that energy into i'm going to show you absolutely and look i've talked to a lot of journalists in australia with funny sounding names what they say is funny sounding names and they've said that they've been hit with at least a seven year career back because of their name they felt that it was a shame that they felt it was you know something that was scoffed at laughed at and they constantly had to fight for their journalistic integrity to Crazy. This is like something out of the 1950s. But it's happening. And it happened to me and it's happened to other journalists. Yeah, you know, I remember at university, um, uh, people that I you know, was at university with who were, you know, their families, they were first generation Australian, but, you know, they came from uh, Greece and Italy and to Australia. 
Uh, there was a, a, a girl, a woman at the time, her name was Helen Campbell, and she said, uh, and I can't remember her Greek name, but literally when her father arrived, the burly immigration officer asked what his name was, and, you know, it might have been Campbellopolis or something, <laughs> and he said, Campbell, go. And that was it. The whole family's name was changed because this immigration officer in the 1950s couldn't be bothered or couldn't take the time to actually write out the name. And you're saying this is still happening now? Yeah, it's still it's still happening. And uh, look, it, in the UK, it's, it was it's much more cosmopolitan and the population's more diverse. So for them, it wasn't about the name. It was just the fact that you can articulate, you can understand this, these concepts. We just need you to do your job. Your name is secondary. Yeah. Yeah, and the space that it takes on the byline is almost irrelevant. It fits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want to go back to something that you said, which also shows an incredible level of intelligence and insight, which you said the GFC was coming and you knew the place to be was the UK or the US. Now, from my perspective, that's incredibly insightful because the biggest market that was hit by the GFC was London. The city of London was the place. It was almost like the epicentre, even though junk bonds and things like that were originated in the UK. Oh, sorry, in the US. It was the UK that suffered, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Lehman Brothers, you know, yeah. and the, the whole line of um, transactional, you know, fiasco that that was. Um, and uh, people thought I was absolutely mad to go to the UK. I mean, this is the time when Aussies were coming back to Sydney with jobless and, and in financial strife. And there I was going there trying to make a living. But I knew that as a journalist, that is where the news was going to be. And that's where, you know, where, as a journalist, you have to be where the news is. The front line, the they front say. Line. You know, go to the front line where it's actually happening, where the action's happening. Exactly. And, you know, there were a lot of publications that were really uncovering more and more uh, about, you know, governance and then the intersection of um, data security and technology and business and all of these you know, new issues that were surfacing from the GFC. This is where all this sort of corporate governance and technology and cybersecurity, they're all coming into play. So it was such an exciting time to be part of that ecosystem. Now, it must be interesting. You're in London. You're working at the Times, Sunday Times. Um, and, and this is where you started also to be doing work you know, almost freelance as well, or writing work. What what sort of brought that about? Did you have too much spare time on your hands or was it because you are in demand? Yeah, again, it was the skills that were in demand. Yeah, so off the back of the times, there were a lot of um, content agencies and PR agencies that needed, um, you know, well-written articles, thought leadership pieces, comms, the works. So when they saw my name in the newspaper, they just came on, you know, could you write this for me, please? Yes, exactly. What could you write? I need a thousand words or ten thousand words on this. When could I have it by? Yeah, exactly. And um, I also did a lot of work with the um, Black Solicitors Network, so a lot about the diversity leagues tables, uncovering um, you know the issues of diversity in London. So there was a lot of interesting research reports that we were doing, and it was it was absolutely fascinating to be you know working on so many different projects at once. So 
Is that where you started getting the interest of moving beyond journalism into marketing and, and, and starting to work around, you know, creating media content, you know, developing this into the business that you have today? Yes, so uh, one of the um, publications that I was involved with was Raconteur, which is a B2B um, marketing, um, it's like a supplement that goes in the Times and the Sunday Times. So I actually worked as a publisher for the pieces. Um, so we produced the whole um, lift out end to end. And there was a lot of content marketing principles in that um, because we created a lot of infographics, a lot of reports. There was a lot of commissioning of, you know, content pieces in that. So it really made me understand um, the power and potential of content marketing and where it was going both, um, you know, in the print space, but also in the digital space where things were quickly shifting to. Um, and I started getting really fascinating in the concept of content marketing as a principle. Yeah, because, you know, it, this is the early day. Well, not that early. What, what, what are we talking, 2010? Uh, 2008, 2009. Okay. Right, yeah. okay. So, but certainly because, you know, I started blogging in 2006 and I wasn't the first person to do it. But there was definitely, you know, it was seen as fringe then. So to be in a very commercial role doing that would be quite interesting because we know, especially in Australia, the newspapers were very slow to move away from ink on paper to really embracing online content, weren't they? Yeah, and the uh, commercial or custom content division of, of publishing, that side I think was very slow in um, the APAC region really. Uh, compared to, say, the UK and the US, where I think they have a little bit more of an advanced custom content division. Could that be also because the market's so much bigger? Yes. Yeah, I think the market's bigger. But also, um, dare I say, some of the publications in Australia are a little, still a little bit parochial. You can say that. Yeah. <laughs> and well, even Mark Ritson says one of the big problems Australia suffers is that in almost every category we've had oligarchies, you know, that it hasn't been a true open market. Whereas, you know, you go to the UK, you go to the US, there are big competitive markets and it's actually competition that is driving the innovation. Mm. Whereas you come to Australia and, you know, for a long time there was two or three media players. There was, you know, two or three major retailers. There's two or three supermarkets. You know, that it's only competition that actually drives it. But, you know, distance, population, geography are all things that uh, has made Australia not able mm. to really sustain that you know, massive competitive tension that drives innovation. Well, interestingly, what we advise our clients is just create your own media channel. I'll give you a great example. Health, the health tech industry and the whole sort of um, health ecosystem, if you look at all the health trade publications, there's hardly any of them. Um, the, the content's, you know, so-so, but... We actually have the capability to ask, get our clients and say, look, let's create your own digital magazine mm. and your own social media against that and your own um, newsletters and, and your own um, webinars and create your own media channel that, you know, slashes so much of the advertising that's going to go towards um, these trade publications that aren't going to give you nowhere near as much engagement and reach and, and you know, um, experience for your customers. So 
I think that's a, that's one thing that's interesting in Australia because it's it's so small. It actually gives um, digital innovators the opportunity to create their own their own media channels in ways that couldn't be done before. Absolutely, it's also because niche publishers are still relying largely on advertising, and so when you're relying on advertising in a small category, it's very hard to make it work. You know, whereas if your marketing budget becomes your publishing budget or your content budget, then it's, it sustains itself because you're actually investing in content as a way of driving um, traffic and, and customers to your business, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when it comes to sort of marketing spend around all this, uh, you know, some of the pricing that, the you know, the publishers are asking, I mean, we, we're kind of in the middle where we you know, we advise our clients of the best possible deals for them. So we say to the publishers, okay, what can you give us for, you know, a, a, you know, in terms of a, a, news, a newsletter placement, um, some ads on, on your website? And, you know, you, you're getting figures in the, the thousands, like $3,000. And, you know, well, what's the engagement of, this, of click-through rate? Oh, well, it's like 1%. Well, I'm sorry, you've just put a whole bunch of LinkedIn ads. You can get far more ROI or Facebook ads, you know, that's targeted with the right content. You can get far more return than, you know, this kind of, and they're so, oh, well, we'll put your post out on our social media channel, but you only have 800 followers on your social media channel and you're a, you know, trade publication. How can we justify that? You know, it's, it's just silly from a marketing standpoint. And also you want to have your direct relationship with those clients anyway. So why abdicate it through a third-party publisher? But we've jumped a step here because did you start this work in the UK or is this really evolved since you returned to Australia? Yes, yeah, so I certainly picked up a lot of uh, content marketing skills from Raconteur and uh, the PR agencies that um, I was working with in London. Coming back to Australia, I worked at um, IDG Mm-hmm. So I worked across CMO Magazine, um, Computer Weekly and CIO, and I was lecturing as well. Um, and In I, journalism, wasn't yeah, it? Yes. Yeah. So I lectured in business journalism um, and uh, media law, uh, as well as um, professional news practice. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, because I love doing lots of things, uh, I started doing a lot of work with King Content at the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I got a real Craig. insight, yeah, in how they were scaling content and what they were doing right and what they would could be doing better. Um, and that, on top of getting a gazillion terrible media pitches from terrible PR agencies that just didn't understand the technology landscape, just frustrated me. And I thought, you know what, there's a better way to do all this. You know, there's there's better ways to pitch articles to press and get me and get press coverage. There's a better way to scale content and get results. There's a better way for clients to spend their money and not feel like they're wasting it on all this sort of hot air and and and, and silly, silly content that's not leading anywhere. Um, and I thought, you know what, it's time, it's my time. I think I'm ready to actually start something different. Fantastic. Is it, it's a great moment, isn't it, when you actually go to that point of saying, I'm ready to jump off the edge of the cliff and I'm reasonably confident I'm not going to land on the rocks. Yes. Did, is that how it felt for you? Because it was certainly my feeling and that's why it's so present for me even 20 years later. 
when it comes to, you know, that, that point in time where you just need to make that big leap and start your own business and start your own agency, um, you know, you've got to know where where it's going to be heading. I knew with journalism, it was a dead end. You know, the publishing, whole publishing world is shrinking. And I hadn't had a pay rise in the whole time I was a journalist, even though I was you know, doing lots of freelance work and supplementing with lecturing and everything wasn't leading anywhere and you know with a family a growing family there had to be a more sustainable way to create a, a, a viable career for myself so I felt like this was the only way um, and all I uh, the first step I did is I put a post out on LinkedIn saying I'm starting this agency who's interested I had a thousand views in the day and I had uh, about four or five clients already signed by the end of the week and I knew that time it was time to say goodbye to journalism. And you've also picked a segment, which is the B2B segment, which is often overlooked by the sort of mainstream advertising and, and PR people, isn't it? It's not a sexy, it's not a sexy niche, for sure. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's sexy. It, it's often, I think, more about how high profile it is. See, I think people, yeah, people are attracted to, you know, especially creative people are attracted to having a stage where their work can be seen by many, whereas a lot of B2B work does happen on a very intimate level. And I think that's probably the difference between the two. But in actual fact, B2B has become such an important part of the uh, marketing and communications area, hasn't it? Yeah, and look, there's a, a bit of a convergence now between the, the type of creatives you're seeing in B2C and B2B. I mean, look at Salesforce. I mean, they're doing some incredibly, you know, creative and whiz-bang um, content and, and, you know, creatives that they're, they're doing out there. I think more and more B2B companies are looking for a little bit more of a B2C style look and feel. Um, and I think we're really well-placed to do that. I mean, my husband, who's my business partner, um, he runs the whole creative division of our agency um, and we've found that has completely flourished in the past couple of years because people want really amazing, compelling video content. They want animations. They want that, that feel of a B2C campaign but in the B2B environment. Yeah, I think um, what's happened is people have realised that it's still people even when it's B2B. In fact, uh, some people call it, uh, uh, what is it, uh, B2E, business to everyone. You know, that it's re we really can't distinguish that it's still people at the end of the day that make B2B decisions, you know. So that, of course, they're going to be inspired, engaged, excited by, you know, creative ideas. Absolutely. I, I always say that is that people buy from people. It's not businesses buying from business, it's people. And and speaking of, you know, the, the people working together, it, usually what happens is the, the person from one business wants to work with another person from another business that they're just going to get along and they know that things are going to be easy. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't matter how whiz-bang big that other agency is as long as the teams can get along and can get stuff done and can get the results that's all that matters it's just making life easy for each other but um, one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about and one why I wanted to have this conversation was that you're one of the few companies agencies which actually invests in doing this for yourselves 
you know, there are a lot of agencies that out there talk about being content marketers, being media companies, and yet they produce almost nothing for themselves in the way of self-promotion or even demonstrating their own abilities. But you've taken a very different approach, haven't you? Yes, there's that old saying that architects have the messiest houses and it's often an, an excuse that's thrown around in agency land. But um, we felt, and especially with the pandemic this year, we felt that we had to do things differently and we had to walk the walk. And we were you know, really lucky that we have Athena Malice on board, who's one of the rising stars from Witch 50. We've got Vanessa Mitchell, who's an incredible seasoned journalist from IDG. Um, and, you know, Wayne, who's running all the creatives. And we just put all our minds together and thought, okay, this is a time to scale our content and show how we how we do it, um, lead by example. Yeah. But uh, when I have that conversation with many agencies, and especially those that have positioned themselves as content experts, they'll often say to me, oh, well, but we really don't have a lot to say. You know, we don't... What would we write about or what would we make? And I go... Well, that's quite sad, isn't it? I mean, what what would you say is the inspiration for the content that you produce for yourselves? Well, we uh, we have a really interesting approach to our content. So on one hand, it's actually thought leadership where we interview amazing thought leaders and we share their insights to help educate our um, customers and our prospects. And then we do a lot of educational content. You know, we in our discussions with our clients, we identify things that we feel like is not really well understood in the business community. Um, something as simple as lead generation, what is it? And and what's the difference between lead generation and media coverage? You know, simple things like that. We do a lot of social listening. We uncover pain points. And then we, we just create content that addresses those pain points, solution-based content. The other uh, thing that stops a lot of agencies or companies producing their own content is this desire to make it perfect before they put it out. They almost feel like if they're going to put this content out under their own name, that they would want to make sure that it's 100% you know, perfect, which means that they don't never produce anything. What's your attitude towards perfection? That's a really interesting question because we used to say this a lot to students uh, when I was lecturing in journalism. We said the digital world it can be forgiving. It's okay to have a few mistakes here and there. It doesn't have to be 100% perfect. It's better to get things done, get the message out there. You can always go back and edit it and, and fine-tune it. But it's the, the most important thing is to build momentum. And if perfectionism is holding you back, well, you shouldn't be in business in the first place. You shouldn't be having an agency in the first place. Well, no, the, and I'm so glad you said that because I say to people it's better to be regular than it is to be perfect. That uh, what we've found is that by having a very strict publishing timetable, by having things appear when they we say they'll appear, is actually built following more than necessarily you know the quality of the output. Because you know there'll be some weeks where a podcast will get thousands of listens, and others that might only get four or five hundred. But the fact that it's there week in and week out, every Tuesday, um, means that we've now got this huge following that knows on Tuesday it's going to drop. And I think that's part of you know the relationship that uh, content builds with an audience is just knowing it's going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. It's that consistency. 
and consistency builds trust. So there's a lot of, um, you know, like little soft implications of just those, those moving parts. And if you just focus on, oh, the grammar's a bit wrong or that, that you know, little uh, full stop's not quite right or, you know, yeah, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I like what you said. You can always change it. Because I remember we put out a post and it had a terrible, terrible typo in it. And I got an email, you know, from one of those uh, grammar, I was going to say Nazi, but that's a terrible thing to say. But, you know, a a grammar uh, pedant. And, uh, you know, oh, I'm outraged that you'd made this mistake. Because one of my um, failings is I split my infinitives. But uh, so... I just wrote back and said, thank you very much, it's been corrected. And that was it. You know, it's not the end of the world, is it? No, it's not the end of the world. And and I think, um, you know, we see a lot of what, what we call Marcom's rigmarole and it's my absolute pet hate. I think Marcom's rigmarole is, the, is a death wish on marketing and PR. Um, and I think people just need to let go. It's okay if there's a mistake here and there. You can always go back and fix it. The most important thing is the message is out there and it's connecting with the right people. Okay. So, Zad, I just want to do a little exercise with you now, okay? (laughs) So you're running this very successful media and marketing company. You've had a career as an international journalist and you started life as a lawyer. Let's explore what are the skills or the abilities that get carried through. Mm. Because, you know, there would be things happening today for you running a business that you would be leaning on all those things. And, and look, the reason my interest is that I find myself still using my science training. So I'm interested for you, what are the things that are part of your day-to-day life, that the training and the experience you have are really valuable to you now? Okay, so some of the really important ones that I feel are really critical to running a business um, contract drafting and negotiating, um, uh, being able to put something together and, you know, being able to be accountable from a legal standpoint is really important. Um, that, I feel, has saved our company thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, also, when uh, clients come back on certain things or want to hold us accountable, I'm very good at tracking evidence against things um, so the, building the case, so building to speak. the case. I'm very good at that, um, and I think it's really important for any agents to understand how to do that. Otherwise, you end up in this huge kind of fiasco of who said who said what. Or, or you default to a service position, which is even when you're right, you have to pretend you're wrong because you don't want to upset people. Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, a lot of um, companies. They recruit agencies because they're a bit of a scapegoat. You know, you kind of give them the work, they give them the projects, but it's easy to point the finger at the agency. But if that agency, you know, has a good legal standpoint and understands where the accountability is, they can point the finger right back. And that's when it starts getting really interesting. Mm. Um, I think from a journalistic standpoint, definitely the ability to communicate very quickly and effectively and being able to scale content, whether it's multimedia, written, um, you know, all the different formats, understanding how to create that content at scale. I think that's been absolute gold. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't say uh, deadlines because I know journalists work to deadlines, don't they? That's right. Uh, deadlines, time management, uh, 
it's something I suppose I take for granted as a debt, you know, when it comes to deadlines. Um, never miss a deadline. Um, but what's also important is to give lead time. And, you know, in journalism, everything's fast paced, but something that I've definitely learned is create realistic deadlines within marketing. Mm. So if you estimate a lead time is, say, a week, double it, because that will give you extra time for your team to get things right and to take the stress out of it. Mm. There's also a part of uh, setting deadlines that are beyond most people's control, and that's also the client side. You know, there's always that uh, factor that you have to build into any deadline. You can know how quickly you can turn it around, but there's always that interaction for the client, you know, instead of, and, and we see this all the time, you know, where agencies will put together a very tight deadline because it's what the client wants. But you can tell straight away it's not going to happen because it'll say concept approved. Well, they only saw it that morning and you want, you've got it in your timeline as approved on the day. Most people will want to sleep on it. You know, so there's things like that that need to be built into deadlines. That's right. And one of the things that we do first off when a client starts engaging with us is we have a, uh, a process workflow sheet where we have you know, every single campaign element or creative or content piece has a process associated with it. So they're very much aware of what the process is and what the average lead time is for every component. So it sets the realistic expectations from the outset. So, you know, no one's kind of rushing and scrambling all the time. Do you think your legal training also helped you build stories? Like, in, you know, part of law is to actually build a case. You know, and building a case is taking bits, facts and pieces of information and being able to present it in a way that's a compelling argument. Um, do you think that's also been part of what's driven your ability as a journalist, first of all, and now as a uh, as a you know, producing B2B uh, media and, and marketing? Yeah, well, it's certainly helped um, the pitch process. You know, I don't have a sales bone in my body um, and, you know, having to pitch for work, you know, our team goes into a boardroom full of, you know, executives and we have to pitch. And being able to um, showcase uh, and the evidence of our results, um, create the, the use cases and case studies, um, and really um, deep dive into you know, the data and, and the results in a, in a compelling way, gather the evidence as such, I think that's really, really helped um, from, from my legal background. Because mm. I see a theme happening here is, uh, is really about storytelling. I mean, in very different uh, frameworks. I mean, there's a legal framework for the way lawyers tell stories. You know, it's based on precedent and 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 uh, legislation or laws. Uh, as a journalist, it's uh, well, it used to be based on revealing the truth, being the fourth pillar that held democracy and power to account. And now you're working in uh, marketing and you're driving that storytelling in marketing. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of marketing? Oh, that's a big question. It's like Hamlet, to be or not to be. What is the question? <laughs> well, if, if law is about you know, working to bring about justice and journalism is about truth, what's marketing about? I think marketing is about educating your customer about the problem they have and the solution that you have to solve it. Oh, I love that. Because most people talk about persuasion, but you're actually talking about, and especially in B2B, you know, 
You said a minute ago, you don't have a sales bone in your body, but don't you realise that that's what you've been doing is you sell by solving their problems. That's right. It's, it's solution selling. Um, but uh, look, I think there's the, the, there's different ways to attract your audience. Um, I don't I don't believe in the hard sell, but um, I, I think there's there's some innovative ways you can generate leads, especially now, using the right channels um, and solution. I think identifying the real pain points of your customer and be able to deliver a solution, I think, is the most uh, smartest way forward for B two B. Yeah, I, I uh, am testament as a B2B customer of the power of content because for the first 10 years up to the global financial crisis or the global recession, every time I leave Australia, I have to remember it wasn't a financial crisis anywhere else in the world. It was a recession. Um, but uh, people say to me, why do you produce so much content? Because we started in around 2010, really doing inbound marketing, I call it. And I say to them, here's, here's the facts. Prior to that, we would convert 30% of our leads. Now we convert better than 60% of our leads because when people contact us, they know who we are and they've already pre-qualified themselves for the conversation. So now if we miss out, it's usually because they didn't have the money or they were looking for someone in a competitive tender or they were mistaken and we're not the right people for them. And all of those reasons are perfectly good reasons not to get that business. So, I, look, I really, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, opportunity to reevaluate the wider purpose of why we do marketing. And, and also where it's heading. So I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss it all. Now, before you go, um, I do want to ask you a question, and that, it's a bit from all three aspects of your, uh, of your career, is that you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about media and traditional media in this country. Um, do you think that there's a problem with the way that we've structured media in Australia, and should we make changes? Thank you.